Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek, and today we're privileged to have Atusa Araxia Abrahamian, senior editor for The Nation, intrepid journalist, as you'll all see, and author of The Cosmopolites, The Coming of the Global Citizen, which I believe came out in 2015. Is that right, Atusa? Yes, but now I'm aging myself, so no further comment. <laughs> no, it's, it's awesome because I uh, highly recommend the book. Great blend of uh, journalism, history, economics, uh, all the things that, that our audience likes to see and things that are really relevant to understanding um, everything bound up with global capitalism and, um, and citizenship and climate change, which, uh, which your article is also about, too. The article that just came out in The Nation is um, – the dream of open borders is real in the high Arctic. So, uh, but before we dive into that that great piece, um, maybe tell us a, a little bit about your personal history, which which seems to uh, to be somewhat related to these topics you're pursuing. Yeah, no, it is related. I think that's kind of how I came to these topics of borders and citizenship and immigration. Um, I am a very mixed up uh, human. I was born in Canada, but I have never lived in Canada. Um, I was born there for sort of strategic reasons. And also I have family there. But the long story short is that my parents were both born in Iran. They were living in Switzerland um, and they were expecting me. But Switzerland doesn't give birthright citizenship. And so to avoid having to get me a visa every time I needed to go anywhere because this was the 80s and also Iran. Not that that much has changed, to be honest. Right. Um, having an Iranian passport kind of sucks if you don't live there. Um, they thought, well, we have family in Canada. They have pretty good hospitals. Let's just go for it and have the baby there. Um, so, you know, I guess that makes me an anchor baby, except nobody has ever taken advantage of this anchor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just means I have a really great passport. And um, so I'm Canadian. I'm also Swiss because I lived there for a long time, uh, 18 years. Um, and I'm Iranian on paper, although I don't speak Farsi. I don't read it. I don't I don't really know the country that well. It's pretty cool, though, if you have a chance to go someday. And uh, finally, I've been in the States for the greater part of the past 15 years, moved here for school, and I just finished an extremely long and drawn out process of getting my green card. So that's done. Wow, congratulations. Uh, for better or for worse, I'm here now. <laughs> You're stuck with, with this country, <laughs> one way yeah, or the other. Yeah, it's true. And actually, I am, because you're not supposed to, when you get a, a permanent residence card or when you you know, obtain permanent residency, um, it's actually pretty hard to leave without losing that status. And huh. it's so hard to get that status that you're then like, oh, wait, what did I get myself into? Now I'm stuck. Uh, but I want to be here. So it's okay. It's okay. Isn't that interesting? People forget about the, the freedom to leave part. That, that's, that's something that, uh, um, you know, with, with borders, we often forget that it's, it goes both ways. And, and sometimes the first sign of a, a country or a place that, that uh, doesn't value freedom is the way that they keep people in. That's interesting. Right. And actually, the history of the passport in that respect is fascinating, because we think of passports as something that allows us to roam freely and travel and see new places and go abroad. But the function of the passport when it was conceived, um, you know, hundreds of years ago was actually to keep people in and to prevent people from leaving. And so it's funny how that's kind of turned around. And now you'll you'll see, oh, passport to the world in an ad for a credit card or, or whatever, right. um, when really the function is, is completely the opposite. 
See, this is so interesting. We, we had Greg Grandin on, uh, who has a great new book out, The, the End of uh, the Frontier, and, and he talks about the myth of the frontier and how Trump and the kind of movement behind Trump has inverted that myth to be about walls and about you know, closing people in because the frontier uh, is kind of no longer there to, to, to use. The land isn't actually there for, for people to mythologize, and so there has to be an mm. inversion of that myth. Um, and, and so it's interesting that just reminds me of how, you know, socially constructed these ideas are and how the history really influences how we think about them, but also the actual physical, natural restraints and constraints and changes with the climate and with, with the earth and, and, and the population that is destroying it, um, you know, kind of intersects with that. So, so, uh, I think that's a really good kind of lead into, to your, looking at these issues and the necessary way you bring in those kind of historical moments, the kind of economic and physical forces that are all kind of um, intermeshed in, in creating how we think about these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that history is, is a huge part of it, but also every day it seems like these old ideas are being subverted and reinforced, right? That in the same way that the Grandin says that this, frontier mythology is kind of, it's like the equal but opposite what we're seeing now. Um, and I think, well, it's something I think about a lot and something I thought about a lot when I went to the Arctic and maybe this is a little out of left field, but mm -hmm. for, for a long time, there were, there were places where humans could go and discover new things, mm. right? Often it took the form of really awful, like, genocidal colonialism, but there were new places to see. There were new places to go. Um, and now it's all kind of, it's all kind of been discovered in a sense. And I wonder what that does to our brains. Like, I wonder if some evolutionary bunk person has thought of this at all. Cause it does seem, it does seem, if not like, uh, what's the word? Um, psychological, like neurologically. Yeah. Yeah. It's claustrophobic. And I think, I think that this turning inward maybe is a reaction to, to, to a geographical claustrophobia. Um, I don't know. I, I'm just totally <laughs> theorizing yeah, no, here, but so, I feel it. I feel so, it. Like this right. is why I go to weird places is that. God, there's got to be something more, right? Maybe, maybe. Is that why you went to the northernmost place that serves uh, Negronis, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, served by Russians. Um, yeah, we're on that later. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think, and, and you know, um, I, I talk so quickly that Ryan doesn't get a chance to jump in, so I'll give him a chance to jump in uh, in a second. But <laughs> no, that the claustrophobia is also our inability to imagine numbers. So what does it mean that uh, there are billions of people on the earth? And so I think when, when, when you have Trump and his invasion language, uh, people don't realize that like 100,000 people in this country with this landmass and our population, not that big a deal, <laughs> like, like easily accommodated, mm -hmm. right? But they, that, yeah. that, that plays into those psychological, I think, inclinations. Yeah, yeah, we don't really know how to deal. And um, we also don't think about how I think the last number I saw this is funny. The State Department doesn't have a precise number of Americans living abroad. Um, but I think the last time I checked, it was a million. It was roughly a million. Uh, let me double check that for you. But somehow, you know, that doesn't ever come into that doesn't ever come into the, right, the right. conversation. Yeah. Sorry, nine, nine million U.S. citizens living abroad. Whoa. 
Wow. Um, that is like way more than the, 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 you know, piddling number of people crossing the southern border. That, that's, the, northern the, the real eva- invasion would be if they came home. Let's, you know. <laughs> that would be bonkers, right? Like that might totally change voting. Like it could do a lot of stuff and no one talks about that. Yeah, we got to send these expats back to, you know, Bolivia and, um, you know, DRC. Because they're they're drinking too much and they're t- talking strange languages, we can't be having this. No, send them back. <laughs> uh, well, you know, Atisa, do you, do you want to mention your book before we dive into your your article a little bit and and um, and perhaps you know just because I think that was your first real in depth dive into some of the the wackiness of of borders and, and global wealth and and citizenship, right? Yeah, so I'll tell you about the book a little bit. Um, so it came out in 2015, which now feels like maybe a little early for this discussion. Prescience, prescience, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, say that to my publisher and maybe look at the numbers. Actually, it did fine. But um, so the book is an investigation into the global market for citizenship. Something a lot of people don't realize is that in addition to obtaining citizenship by being born in a place or by having parents from a place you know, blood or soil, there is a, a third category or fourth or by living in a place long enough that you naturalize. There's a fourth category of citizenship, and that is called citizenship by investment. And it is exactly what it sounds like it is. Um, very wealthy people can essentially buy their way into a whole bunch of countries, whether it's buying citizenship, whether it's buying a green card, whether it's buying real estate that allows you to stay. Basically, if you're rich enough, borders don't exist. And if you're poor, guess what? They do. And so my book is about this idea that for the very wealthy, there are no borders. It looks into several countries that sell their citizenship and how this became a market. Um, it will not shock you to hear that there is a whole ring of consultants and bankers and lawyers and accountants um, all tied up in this business, this very big business of global global citizenship is what they call it. And to report the book, I spent several, well, not, I wouldn't say several years because it wasn't full time, but I went to a bunch of these conferences where, um, passport brokers and heads of state would put on a dog and pony show for, for the people serving the very rich, where they would present their citizenship like a, a commodity that you could buy. Like, like a timeshare. It's like a timeshare pitch. Exactly. It's like a timeshare. It's exactly like a timeshare pitch. I can't believe I didn't think of that before. Timeshares are extremely strange. Um, But yeah, I mean, some of the pitches were literally like buy a vacation house in St. Kitts for, you know, 400 grand and we'll throw in passports for you and your family. And if you're Chinese and you're going to get into trouble with the state or if you're Russian and you're in trouble with the state or if you're Syrian and you want to run away from God knows what's going on in your country, St. Kitts is there for you. Well, thank God that markets exist to perfectly allocate and decide these important questions. I know. Wouldn't it be better if everyone could just buy their way into countries? <laughs> well, and oh, you're, you're, I'm you're, being you're, facetious. I'm being facetious, but it's not. <laughs> it's no more. Right. It's actually less arbitrary than just being born somewhere. Yes, yes. And I don't think it's just, and I don't think it's fair um, right. or good. But but if we're really talking about arbitrariness, then it's worth thinking about. Yeah, this um, that that reminds me of the uh, also your personal story the the recent story of this guy Jimmy Al Daoud. Um, I'm sure you've seen this story going all over the place, mm. but 
um, you know, to recap for, for people who haven't heard of it, this was a guy who was, um, he came to the United States when he was six months old and spent his whole life here, but he had uh, schizophrenia and committed a number of petty crimes, though the worst of that, which was uh, stealing three cordless drills, he actually got himself off. Nevertheless, ICE suddenly deported him to um, Iraq, which is a country where he had never been, uh, did not speak the language, um, and nevertheless was a Iraqi national because he was born in Greece in a refugee camp, uh, but Greece does not have birthright citizenship. And so it sort of reverted one step yeah. back, I guess. Yeah, I and think we're... Go ahead. Oh, sorry, I cut you off. Um, I think that the the absurdity of, of obtaining citizenship at birth and also of not obtaining it at birth um, plays out in some really strange ways. And in my in my book, one of the threads is about a man who was born stateless in the United Arab Emirates. And this is actually worth getting into because it shows the sort of really non-benign, non-ultra-high net worth side of the passport market. Um, what happened... In, to him, this, this man who is, um, actually a human rights activist in, in UAE, um, he was born stateless, like up to a hundred thousand people in that country. They're denied citizenship from, from the state for various reasons. Um, and in 2006 ish, the UAE decided that they wanted to solve their statelessness problem once and for all. The UN was on their case. Human rights agencies were on their case. They were like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna deal with this. Instead of just giving these people citizenship and these people who have been in the country for generations in many cases, the UAE went and bought passports in bulk from this little island nation called the Comoro Islands. And <laughs> for most people who got these passports, actually, it wasn't so bad because any ID is better than no ID. And so it allowed people to register for, you know, license plates and, and just deal with bureaucracy in a, in a vaguely normal way. Um, the problem is that when you have a foreign passport, you can be deported. And so this man that I followed got deported from the place he'd always lived um, to Thailand because it was the one place that got, gave him a visa on his Comoros passport. And so he kind of had this roundabout trip around the world because he was forced to take a passport that had nothing to do with his identity, that had nothing to do with his background. He didn't even really know what Comoros was. Um, thrown in jail, deported, sent away. He ended up in Canada. It turned out, you know, it, it was sort of the best possible outcome. He was able to seek asylum. But, um, you know, people get deported from places they've lived their whole lives to places that they don't know at all. And uh, that's the world we live in today. It's really weird. And Atusa, wasn't it because he spoke out against the government, if I recall? Yeah, the guy was uh, was asking for rights for stateless people. Right, right. So oh. we can but see how, how weaponized this is, right? Yeah, citizenship has definitely been weaponized um, in, in numbers of ways, and this is kind of the most stark and, and direct one. Yeah, and that and that to finish the story, that uh, Al Al Daoud character, he had type one diabetes and uh, could not get any insulin in Iraq, and he died just a few days ago. Um, yeah, there's a good intercept story on him and um, by Chris Gillardi, former nation intern. 
little shout out, but um, nice. it's a really good story. And he had been following Eldoad for, for some, some months and it's very in depth. It's on the intercept. We'll link to it for sure. Yeah. So maybe there's a utopia to some, maybe cause the, the, apparently the dream of open borders, which, which we all, I think would favor in the face of building walls and, and weaponizing citizenship. Apparently the dream is real in the high Arctic. So how did you, how did you, um, pursue even more craziness involving uh, different ways that that, 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 right, that that states deal with these arbitrary line drawing and, and, and how you run things and, and how did how did you get to the high Arctic? Great question. Um, while I was researching my book, I kept coming across mentions of Svalbard. Uh, Svalbard is a place that is part of Norway. It's very far north, extremely far north. It's kind of like the North in Game of Thrones. Um, in, sort of in my mind, that's what it was like, you know. Uh, I My impression of it from afar was, I, I thought it would be like Antarctica. You know, like it's not really a place you can go and walk around and do stuff and have normal life. Um, I thought it was just a research station and that's why it had open borders, quote unquote. Right, right. So no one, one, I just figured no one would want to go there unless you're like studying penguins. There are no penguins in the Arctic, though. That's worth noting. Um <laughs> So I, I learned about Svalbard some years ago, kind of filed it away. And then when I was dealing with my own annoying bureaucratic green card nonsense, which I can get into, but it's really boring. Like, that's the issue. Immigration is very interesting to me. And to a point, I can tolerate anything as long as I find it interesting. And then at some point, the paperwork just gets super boring. And you're like, God damn it. Like, there's really... <laughs> There, this is horrible. Like, it's enough to turn you into a libertarian. I, I, I swear to God. It's like, so I was dealing with paperwork and, you know, give us more information and, like, various levels of denials from this, the USCIS. It turned out fine, but I was so frustrated. And then I had a friend visiting, and he's like, oh, you should move to Svalbard. And I was like, wait. Svalbard, that's like a real place. I was also freelancing at the time and I was always looking for stories to do and ideas and I just went down this rabbit hole of, of Googling and reading and calling people up. And So Svalbard, um, as it turns out, does have open borders. Uh, it also only has 2,300 people and it's very hard to get to and it's extremely cold. So part of, part of the, the geographical um, nature of Svalbard uh, limits how many people show up. But um, the really the background to how Svalbard ended up with open borders, I think, is is really fascinating. Uh, after World War, Svalbard was a no man's land forever. There's no native population. Uh, you know, the cliche is more polar bears than people. I don't know if that's still true because they're kind of not doing so hot. Um, mm. But there was whaling. There was trapping. There were lots of people would show up there seeking their fortune. Um, and in the 1800s, 1700s, uh, a lot of whalers came and they essentially killed off all the whales. So then people left and there was no real reason to go there. And then people came back in the 1900s because they discovered coal. Uh, one of the people who was instrumental in, in creating the coal industry up in Svalbard was a Michigan entrepreneur called John Munro Longyear. And he set up his Arctic coal company and until until Norway gained sovereignty over Svalbard, it was essentially a, a colony of company towns. Mm. World War One happened, and after World War One, the international community essentially bestowed upon Svalbard the, the privilege of govern. Uh, the, the international community essentially gave Svalbard to Norway 
uh, in part because Norway were very good allies during the war, but also because Norway had, you know, slowly been establishing itself as a local force. They built telegraph poles. You know, they were they're they're inching towards having having control, even though the various commercial interests were not fond of that. Like John John Monroe Longyear had some crazy ideas about how to how he could seize power there. So he tried to talk the State Department in into expanding uh, a law called the U.S. Guano Islands Act. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but at some point, oh, the yeah. U.S. passed a law that, and I'm and I'm bungling the legal terminology. But if a U.S. citizen found a ro- a rock or a little island or whatever that had guano on it, guano at the time bird shit was very as a hot commodity for fertilizing and weapons and things like that. Uh, the U.S. said, okay, that we can claim it as appertaining to the U.S. So de facto uh, belonging to the U.S. Longyear found coal in Svalbard. And he was like, wait a minute, let's just expand the Guano Islands Act to include coal so then I can just take Svalbard. It can be American. And the State Department <laughs> were like, yeah, no, I don't know about that. that. That seems to be opening a huge can of worms. And then he was like, guys, 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 wait a minute. I have the best idea. How about we have a corporation run Svalbard and I'm going to be the shareholder of 30% of the corporation and every other country can also pay in. So it'll be like super international and we'll make the laws all together in London or New York. And the State Department was like, yeah, dude, that's like pretty complicated. Like what if another country just buys your shares? We can't really get behind that. He's guy. He's the Cecil Rhodes of the far north Arctic. Well, I know. That's the crazy thing is that these types of ideas keep coming back. Um, A few years ago, an economist called Paul Romer had this idea that there should be charter cities. So uh, cities or zones in one country governed by another country. Um, TLDR (laughs) colonialism. But it's a version of these governance experiments that I think when you go far north enough, pop up because there's so little there uh, to begin with and it feels like a blank slate. And so people get very creative. And I think a lot of these ideas are morally reprehensible, but I still think they're fascinating because they show that there's a different way of thinking about states and governance and sovereignty. And that's been the prevailing theme with Svalbard during its entire existence. Um, Anyway, World War I happened, Norway got Svalbard, But it still wasn't just a normal Norwegian territory because the international community said, Norway, you can run Svalbard. You are the sovereign. You make the laws. You make the rules. But you can't discriminate against anyone based on their nationality. That's super radical because discriminating against people based on their citizenship, their nationality, is something that countries do every day as a matter of course. Even non-discrimination laws, they don't cover if you're from somewhere else and you don't have working papers, right? Like you're not supposed to discriminate based on race or gender, sexuality um, or national origin. But if you don't have the right passport, you can just be discriminated against just normal. Like this happens every day. And so when I found out about that, I thought it was so radical and weird and interesting that Norway of all places was overseeing one of these little little experiments in governance. Isn't that, it's a great lab in a way to explore some of the wackier ideas of how we, we could live together potentially, right? And so, I mean, it's, uh, I, 
it's just, I mean, <clears throat> you have the non-discrimination principle, but then it seems uh, that becomes a problem because they also don't want too many non-Norwegians to end up living in the area, right? Right. What's the point of going to all the trouble of running a country if, the, the, I guess, the people aren't actually yours and you can't have any special privileges over the, the territory? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting little paradox. And so Norway's uh, official policy is to make sure that it is a Norwegian place, Norwegian families. Uh, and it, it's a difficult balance to strike because if you, you have to, everything you offer has to be offered to everyone. There's this sort of universal, in the most basic sense, everything is, has to be universal. Um, so you can't build amazing schools or um, you know, have incredible housing uh, without also offering it to Latvians and Russians and Thai people, and, you know, yeah. and so and it's which is interesting, right? Tuesday, I found this to be a really brilliant insight because you said, okay, look, it's a libertarian utopia conceptually because low taxes are are mandated as part of this, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, you're not supposed to tax people more than the absolute necessary yeah, yeah. minimum. And so you're thinking, okay, libertarians are going to love this, but it turns out there's a lot of governmental involvement that's necessary to work this out, right? Yeah, it's really complicated. It's like there's so many more levels of governance than just a normal town. Um, there's the treaty from 1920. There is the governor, which is kind of like a sheriff and a consul. And so you have the Norwegian governor that is not democratically elected by the people of Svalbard. It is an appointed role from the mainland. So there's this totally, I guess, old an undemocratic international treaty. There's this new undemocratically elected governor. And then there's this local council that is democratically elected um, by the, you know, one fraction of the 2,300 people who live there. But they don't have a whole ton of power because a lot of the rules are set by the mainland. And so, yes, open borders, low taxes. Oh, by the way, you have to have a gun because of the polar bears. So it's like, yeah, it's like what, what what Texas wishes it was, except there's tons of government. <laughs> oh boy! Jeez. Um, <clears throat> I guess I'm I'm a little I'm curious. I'm just looking at a map of this place because I I think you know I had heard of Svalbard, but I've never really you know sort of looked into it at all. And so it's this uh, this island, this sort of group of islands that's that's halfway between Norway and the North Pole, basically. So it's way, way far north, and really big. That's the thing that surprised me. It's like twenty three thousand square miles or something like that. So like not that much smaller than Ireland in terms of area. Um, so like, what is the sort of uh, you know character of this place? Like what? Uh, is it just like mostly wilderness because so few people live there? Um, they have like little camps spread out. What's the deal? <laughs> yeah, it's mostly wilderness. And in fact, it's protected wilderness. Uh, another cool thing about the Svalbard Treaty of 1920 is that it did say it was one of the first environmental treaties. And it put Norway in charge of protecting the, the natural, the flora and fauna and the natural environment. So most of it's protected um, there are some settlements. The biggest one is Long Yerbian, named after homeboy John Monroe Long Michigander. Michigander. Yep, yep. He, he at least got his <laughs> he got his own city at least. Yeah. He got he was he got naming rights. Is that what you call it? He, it was named after him. Um, so that that's the biggest settlement. Twenty three hundred people, thirty seven percent foreign, 
Um, there's a significant Thai population, curiously. There's a lot of Filipino people, a bunch of Norwegians. So that's the town. That's where the, the boats come in. That's where the tourism industry is run out of. There, then there's a couple of research stations. Uh, one of them is called New Allison. That is super international. It's tiny. There's no cell service. It seems like a pretty rough place to live. Um, actually, it's, it was extremely cold when we went there. So um, that's a research station. Then this is really interesting part of the Svalbard Treaty. So there are two Russian settlements on the archipelago. Uh, and by Russian, I mean everyone there speaks Russian, almost. Mm. And that happened because after the treaty was signed, the non-discrimination clause stipulated that it wasn't just freedom of movement. You can't, it's not just living there that anyone is allowed to do. It's also commercial activity. Um, so mining was open for all, as long as it wasn't another government claiming sovereignty. So what did the Russian government think of? Oh, let's start a coal company. Send the coal company there to start company towns. It's not the government, it's the company, Arctic <laughs> And so the, the communists, um, the communist government, the Soviet government rather, established two coal mining towns. One of them is called Barrettsburg and one of them is called Pyramida. And uh, for years, these were the model Soviet villages very far north on Norwegian territory. And these still exist. Uh, Pyramiden is a bit of a ghost town now that's turning into like Soviet Disney far north. These Russian hipsters have discovered it. And so that's where I had the northernmost uh, Negroni. There's a really cool bar. Um, there's some rundown <laughs> old coal mines. You can do a tour of it. There's some pretty neat Soviet architecture. Uh, and then Barentsburg, I did not go to, but that's that's got a few hundred people and there's still coal mining. Uh, so these are these are the main settlements. This is a tiny fraction of Svalbard's uh, territory. The rest the rest is is you know pretty. It's sort of tundra uh, conditions, very very cold, very dry, lots of ice, lots of snow, and it's changing very fast for the reasons we are almost all aware of and acknowledge. Right, and because of climate change, you have, as you wrote about, last chance tourism. So, uh, how many tourists, compared to the actual permanent population, are there usually, or, or you know, what, what, what's what's how touristy is it for that reason? Yeah, tourism has gotten really huge in Svalbard. It, it keeps growing almost every year. It goes up, and um, sometimes these enormous cruise ships will roll into Longyearbyen, and the population <laughs> will double. Uh, it's, wow. I didn't see, I, I saw a big cruise ship. I didn't see what the town was like when all of the people disembarked. Um, but here we go. I'm pulling up the stats and uh, they're in Norwegian. Very helpful. Um, <laughs> you know, when I was doing research for this piece, I was like, God, I wish I knew Norwegian. Uh, unfortunately, not. <laughs> Wait, Pete Budajez literally learned Norwegian so that he could read Norwegian. Maybe I should do, <laughs> maybe he's got something going <laughs> That could be your, your your fifth language. There you go. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. It looks like um, excluding campers, because there is camping there in the summer, um, 150,000 guest arrivals in 2018. Wow. So it's kind of a lot for a town of just 2,300 people. I'd Jeez say so. Fire. Yeah. So tourism's huge. People want to see polar bears. People want to see glaciers. People want to see all the stuff that's, you know disappearing before our eyes and that creates a lot of problems because over tourism is is quite a well-known phenomenon uh it's one thing to have over tourism in venice uh, it's another to have it in this 
tiny place that doesn't even have a septic system. Although unclear Venice has a septic system. Um, I hear it's pretty <laughs> smelly, but you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's just, yeah. it doesn't have the infrastructure for large numbers of people. And, uh, the regulation of uh, the tours is also a big issue. The governor, I interviewed the governor of Svalbard, very nice lady. And <laughs> she, she told me this really wacky story about how a, a group of Saudi tourists showed up and they rent, they got a tour guide who took them outside the town. And as I said, you have to have a gun to leave the town. Um, this guide had a gun, but did not have a license for the gun. And at one point they were hiking around, thought they, that he thought, the guy thought that they saw a polar bear, but he didn't want to be caught. He didn't want to call for rescue because he didn't have a license for his gun. And so he was just like, run for your life. And they all scattered. <laughs> He's like, poor Saudis in the snow. I mean, it's almost a, a comedy, except yeah. they could, could have gotten into serious trouble. And the rescue, uh, search and rescue people came in and kind of dug them out. But this guy didn't have a license. And so this, this happens a fair amount, apparently. Um, so they're looking to regulate it. But again, it's hard to regulate anything when you're bound by these non-discriminatory policies uh, in good ways and bad. That's very Saudi, though. I mean, I would expect them to be, you know, hilarious pratfalls, almost shooting themselves, uh, you know, everywhere. But it's it's nice to know that they're doing it in almost the northernmost place that it's possible to get. <laughs> Too. The northernmost lost Saudis, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's probably some in my backyard as we speak. Who knows? Um, I I wanted to ask. Uh, there, you've talked a little bit about the sort of the 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 trickiness of managing a place where there is sort of kind of sort of de facto open borders in 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 some ways. Um, and yet, you know, as we've as we said, this is like an extremely remote place. Um, uh, on the other hand, I suppose it's also a place that, as you say, has very little in the way of like infrastructure or ability to absorb lots of people. Unlike, say, the United States, which actually did basically have open borders, like open borders except for the Chinese for decades and decades, right? Just just like open season, just come on over. Um, and so, I don't know, what would you say, like, your kind of general takeaway this, like, what lessons uh, uh, would you draw in terms of, like, immigration policy from the, the Svalbard experience? Uh, something that became very apparent very quickly when I was talking to people in Svalbard is that, okay, open borders exist in that people are not discriminated against based on their um, citizenship or their documents, uh, but you have to be, it's, there's still, it's not an egalitarian place. To live in yeah. Svalbard, you have to prove that you can support yourself. Uh, you can't receive government assistance. You can't, um, you know, there's no public housing. Actually, it kind of sounds like what Trump wants to do with the United States uh, <laughs> with his public charge shenanigans. But anyway, you gotta be able to support yourself. Um, you essentially have to be able-bodied. Uh, it's really, there's no, handicap accessible anything there. Um, partly because it's pretty snowy and that this, the logistics of getting around are hard even if you are completely fit and able-bodied. And so it's just, it's a hard place to live logistically. Um, so open borders, yes. Uh, but again, the same problems come up. If you're rich, easy peasy. Show up, pay for everything, you're fine. Uh, if you're poor, not so much. 
you also have to fly most of the time people get there either by um, you know one of these big cruises which require documentation for reasons to do with cruises or you have to fly through Norway the only commercial flights are through um, uh, Oslo and Tromso so you do have to get a transit visa I don't know how hard it probably is case by case how hard it is to get one but it's not like you can just get a flight from anywhere you could charter a flight and um, some people there are a couple of charter flights from Russia for people going to the Russian settlements that allow them to bypass the transit visa issue but we're getting into the weeds here long story short it's not it's not as open and easy as just open borders um, and I think that the especially the wealth the wealth aspect of that is key uh, it's much easier to say anyone can come as long as you're not going to help them out if they have a problem or mm, if you're not going to mm. provide if you don't have a welfare state I don't think that open borders are incompatible with a welfare state um, necessarily but I think in the world we live in now it's pretty hard to it's a pretty hard sell um, and well we got a lot of problems right now right yeah, uh, yeah. so so the way it's so yeah it's a lot easier to have open borders if the responsibility of the state is extremely low um, towards its residents or citizens or what have you uh, the other lesson I guess is that once you are in a place with with such a, a difficult I don't want to say extreme climate because lots of indigenous people have lived in quote-unquote extreme climates for a very long time and who are you know what what is an extreme climate even but as you get into climactic patterns that are unpredictable and difficult to control uh, the idea of human borders and state sovereignty and all of these constructs that I put in the piece govern the way we govern don't really make sense anymore and that's I think an experience that a lot of people that's a feeling a lot of people get when they go to the Arctic that you're just surrounded by ice and snow and everything is kind of shades of white and blue and frost and it becomes absurd to think of a border wall it, and it becomes yes. really absurd to think of these man-made notions as being relevant because if there's a, an ice storm you're fucked like no one's going to help you up there uh even if there is a government in Svalbard even if there is a treaty from 1920 like you're kind of on your own and and it's it becomes a case of humans versus nature and are we going to fight nature or are we going to try to be a part of nature and mm. you know these are the I guess maybe these are the slightly stoned thoughts you get when you're stuck on a boat for two weeks <laughs> and like really seasick yeah. and like you don't have Twitter anymore because there's no cell service. Um, and I highly recommend the experience, but it does put things into perspective, especially as the climate everywhere is going to become more and more difficult to control. Like we're going to have to find yeah. a way to coexist with each other and, and nature um, in, a, in a way that makes state our ideas about state sovereignty sort of irrelevant. No, that's beautiful. That really struck me at the end of your piece about how this particular place really unmasks the arbitrariness, the silliness, the thought that we can draw these arbitrary lines that we can really control in some way, uh, that which is not really ours to control, right? We're, we're the guests here on this earth together. And 
it just seems so clear how ridiculous with all, and there's papal decrees involved in this. There's all these different nation states who change. I mean, the, the, the actual nation state boundaries themselves and which nations become, I mean, there, there's so much ridiculous uh, fiction and we know at some level how fictitious it is, right? The, the socially constructed identities, the imagined communities, all these things. But um, given climate change, given all these hurdles, I really like this lesson about if we just think about the cost to our earth and to each other and the consequences of how we make such decisions, that is the right way to orient ourselves. Because, I mean, so so as you say, it's kind of ridiculous to think about borders up in the high Arctic. It's also somewhat ridiculous, right? This man that died in Iraq because uh, of some – it was a mistake. But would it really have mattered – where he was born or what citizenship we, we decided to give him. Why did we ship a human being to die in a different part of the globe? I mean, that be, because there seems to be some sense of this false naturalization, uh, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, as, as, as if who we are and where we belong is naturalized, as if, as if like, like nature itself, our identity is something that you're just, you're born with and it's just given to you. And we therefore must decide things in these ridiculous ways. This for me, the lesson from both your, your book and this article, we need to completely erase this notion that, that all these complexities bound up with, with our, our history and, and these fictions should control us and the consequences that are so drastic rather than us and, and, Granted, this is a lefty socialist podcast, thinking of people and the consequences to people on the earth fundamentally and primarily and figuring out from there what to do. Yeah, I'm totally with you. And, um, you know, it's, it's really humbling to be there and to think even on the socialist left, all the theorizing we do about, oh, like, what is a better way to do? It's like, oh, no, it's actually we're really we are guests here um, and we're going to die eventually. Yeah. Um, but there was one, um, if, if I may, there was an anecdote that I found very moving from the trip. Uh, at one point we were sailing. So I was in an art residency on a boat and we were on the boat pretty much the whole time. We would get off and explore and then get back on the boat. So we sailed quite far north and the ice prevented us from going further um, because it was very thick and we had a pretty small ship. So our our exploring for the day was to get out and go into these little Zodiac, these little inflatable boats and whiz around, you know, between the ice and check things out. And there were lots of artists, so they, they were painting and taking photos and I was watching them do all of those things. Very interesting <laughs> to observe. Um, but we also saw some animals and there was at one point a walrus on a, on a big ice floe. And uh, someone asked our guide, oh, how many meters, how close can we get? Like, what's the limit? How many meters? And the guide, the guide was like, you know, it's not even about, it's not about meters. It's about how you approach it. It's about not disturbing the animal. It's about giving the animal its autonomy and it's, it's like letting it have its environment. And so it could be like half a meter if you're not bothering it, but it could be, it could be 60 miles if you're going to be disruptive. And I thought that that was just a really interesting and profound way to conceive of a border um, mm. and one that we completely forget when we draw lines. Yeah. Yeah. With, with the Trump, the Trump mentality, there aren't enough walls and there aren't uh, enough exclusions to be made that can, can create the reality they want. And that's why really the fascist impulse is, is ultimately ex- extinguishes life itself. Right. And, and so it's like, instead of this liberal way of measuring everything and having all the bureaucracy and regulations, 
if you, if you instead orient to how we treat ourselves and each other and, and think of uh, those relationships to nature, to, to animals, to each other, then so much more is possible. Yeah, and if we thought of this poor Iraqi who was deported, um, yes, okay, on paper he was born somewhere else, but if you approach it as a human and, a, and as a living person, then none of that really is relevant, right? He's a dude with you know, health problems who's lived in the U.S. his entire life. Like, why, why, it doesn't make sense to draw the line the way that we have been drawing it. So, yeah. Yeah, indeed, if you, uh, if you watch the <clears throat> video of him, um, he's, he's, you know, he has a, a marked Detroit accent, and he says, Iraq, you know, just like George W. Bush. Yeah. And you think it's just really easy to imagine yourself in that guy's shoes being like, I don't know anybody here. I don't have any money. Um, I can't speak the language and just getting like hassled by people, nowhere to sleep. Ooh, grim, grim stuff. And to think that, I mean, yeah, ideally you would just say like, okay, here, you know, if this was any type of person, had been living in Detroit for six, you know, t- for 40 years or for 40 minutes, you would think, okay, this person needs help. We shouldn't just send them to die because of, you know, arbitrary stipulations. But to to think of these ICE guys who look at someone who is just like very obviously an American to his very marrow, you know, in terms of his culture and and, and so forth, and just be like, nope, we're stuffing you in the plane. <laughs> Good luck, buddy. With your schizophrenia and your diabetes type one and your no money and no prospects, that's uh, that's uh, some pretty monstrous cruelty right there. Well, it it reminds me too that no particular policy that we look at as leftists is inextricable from the rest, right? And this this reminds me too when we talk about like prison abolition and, and people just picture our current system. Same thing with open borders; people can't picture in the United States what that would mean. But it's bound up with a whole different way of looking at everything and, and at each other, right? So, like, our imagination needs to shift. Uh, were, were there any changes in your thinking about how the future of, I mean, global capitalism and, and the future of our country um, can be shifted or what we need to think differently, how we need to imagine things differently in order to move closer to a reality where we're not doing things to people based on where they were born? Yeah, I don't have the answers. I'm afraid. I wish I. I wish I did. I think about this a lot. Um, Come on. <laughs> I mean, we got we got Gre- we got Greg Grandin to admit that the workers of the world have to unite, and that was the solution. But oh, I didn't know that. Do they? Um, <laughs> uh, I think. Look, I think that this, and this is something I'm going to keep thinking about, and I'll let you know if I if I crack it. But um, the the idea of the idea of state sovereignty is so much more complicated and interesting. And, and I mean, in practice, I don't just mean in, in theory, like the right. ways that countries yes. can have sovereignty is so, so much more expansive and bizarre and um, interesting than we think of it. Um, territorial sovereignty, I think, is an idea that's going to have to be maybe if not go away, then be modified and expanded. Um, mm. I think that will create new systems of oppression. I don't think that it's going to be, again, Svalbard is not yes. a utopia yes. and this will not be a utopia either. But I do think that if we're going to make it through 
the next couple hundred years on Earth as humans in, in this climate, we're just going to have to rethink the way the way we run things and our relationship to nature and to understand that we are secondary to it. And that, um, you know, look, if we rethink sovereignty completely and, and think of it in a totally non-territorial way, that could be awful, right? That That's like the British East India Company. And that's a lot of like really yeah. bad shit in history went down because of non-territorial sovereignty. So I'm not saying we need to go back to that, but I think- One thing to contrast it with is the vision on offer from like the eco-terrorist that just killed a bunch of people in El Paso, Texas, right? And and the kind of, I mean, we talked about Josh Hawley and his cosmopolitan elite speech uh, on this podcast recently. And there's this very, I mean, the left needs like a clear kind of response to the, the simple, answer that uh, the the right wing when they see the reality is climate change you know causing these problems their answer is okay we get to decide who counts as human and who counts as American and we're just going to exclude 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 and that's our answer and we can we can deal with this problem that way so the left needs to come up with a response to that or else that's a you know we're going to see more of these terrible terrible shootings and, and such yeah so here's a thought that I had um Spalford is really appealing to me uh, on a theoretical level because it's a place that is for almost everyone. How many places in the world are there where anyone can just go? Like there is no such place. There are no such places that really are for everyone. Um, And I think that we need to start thinking of the commons as a place where people can be, where people can seek shelter, where, where, where anybody is welcome. And to have that, we're going to have to think of different ways to govern. Um, and if this sounds a bit like seasteading, you are not wrong. But, you know, <laughs> I'm not endorsing that. But I do think that there's something to that thinking, right? Going back to this kind of territorial claustrophobia, that there are no new places. Maybe we need to carve them out. Maybe we need to create them. Um, yeah. Because the, the system we have now is untenable and the climate is only going to make it more so. And that's kind of where I'm where I'm going in my thinking on this. And uh, right. yeah, I, I, I welcome it, any criticism or further. No, no, not not at all. You know, uh, there's definitely people that we have to think about when their islands go underwater. Uh, apparently, five hundred thousand acres in the in the Midwest went underwater, like farmland, and it didn't really get reported in our country. So that's uh, a little scary. But but also there's yeah yikes indeed right. But but there's also a lot of people coming to our border from Latin America uh, who didn't want to leave their home. Like they wanted to stay where they were, but uh, in part because of our imperialistic policies and actions, right? We could stop displacing and causing wars and, and harming people around the world that force them uh, to have to leave where they would. So it's not like everyone would just come to the United States uh, without you know, for, for just because that's the place to be. A lot of people want to stay where they are if if they yeah, weren't forced to flee. Yeah, that's such an arrogant. That's such an arrogant way of. That's such an arrogant way of thinking of um, migration. Right. Like, of course, people want to come here. Yeah, actually, moving really sucks. Like, have you ever moved? <laughs> have you ever moved? Like, not not even across like the street, but to another country. Like, that sucks. No one wants to do that. And like, people in Mexico are just like you. They also don't like schlepping their shit around the world. So. <laughs> That's something I can't say enough. And one of my favorite uh, um, posters that I've seen at a rally, like ever, is just, if you don't want refugees, stop creating them. And I think that nails it. Like, yeah, that's completely on point. Um, Something I argue about a lot with 
liberals and people who are like, open borders are impossible, is that, yeah, okay, if you open every border overnight today, things will get weird. Like, maybe it's not probably not going to be as bad as you say it is, but like, yeah, it's going to be pretty difficult to like manage and to make sure everyone's happy and okay and, and healthy. And let's just put that aside. Um, the way to not have that is to make sure people don't want to move and to make life possible in other places. And right. that's, I think everyone would be better off, you know, not to yeah. say that we're incapable wow. of having a cosmopolitan society. Like I really believe that that's possible, but um, also, yeah, moving sucks. Yeah. And the, I think the, the other thing that's worth sort of pointing to in general is as you say, there's this whole, uh, you know, apparatus of of you know, sort of open borders for the one percent, basically, where you can buy your way into you know most countries or a whole lot of countries, anyways, with a sufficient investment, and you know their money gets to go all over the place too. You yes, know, open yes. borders for capital, um, and I think that you know one of the big engines of uh, reactionary anti-immigrant politics nowadays is, is the sort of perception um, among the plutocrats that the way to keep the rabble out of their money is to scapegoat, you know, the immigrant population to say that actually, you know, your threat is the, the, the Mexicans are coming to take your jobs and not that, you know, I'm shipping your job to Mexico or that the government's bailing me out and not you. Uh, uh, and you know, I, there's definitely an organic tendency there. Like people do have that, those like bigoted attitudes, but I think that it's definitely being stoked as sort of dialectical process. You know, you saw that soul cycle billionaire guy who was holding the big Trump fundraiser and he's like, Oh, I'm not racist. Please, urban professionals, don't stop going to SoulCycle because I just want the money and I don't give a shit about anyone but myself. It's not like I am personally racist. I've never said the N-word or, you know, beaten someone to death with a lug wrench because they had a skin tone, a couple of shades browner than me. I'm I'm a perfectly decent person. And Says the dude that. who's like maybe never taken a soul cycle class. Like that shit is so <laughs> <laughs> That's so that so when when Foucault said uh, the fascist is inside all of us, it started with Soul Cycle. We didn't know that that's where it's been cultivated. <laughs> yeah. No, the, no, but yeah. Ryan, I think that's a great point about. It reminds me that you know the tendency on the right, especially, but in tandem with global capital, so liberals are part of this too, to to want to um, let capital be free moving, but restrict movement of people and create, you know, it's really the opposite that the left, I think, should want, right? To, to let people move as freely as possible, but restrict the flow of capital, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, our, our, uh, our podcast... Buddy, um, friend of the pod, Jeff Spross, had an article about this. Say, open, you know, ideal situation would be open borders for people, but not for 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 capital. You know, and even say that like the moving money from one one country to another, as if like that's that's taking an object, you know, that that a pre political object from one place to another. That's kind of incoherent. You know, it's like you're. You're having to take one state-created property thing and then transfer it to the other state. Um, there's no, you know, it's not like a person that can just walk, you know, from one place to another. 
Uh, and look, I think I think yeah. moving capital is totally fine if it's like for redistribution or for for like right. noble purposes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think and yeah, I, I I'm sort of. I'm sort of torn about whether that's, I, I have made this argument a lot and now I'm kind of thinking about it as like, is it really, are you comparing apples to apples when you talk about people and money? And I don't think, and to your point, I, like, I don't think like money doesn't have legs. It can't just like up and move. It doesn't have will. It doesn't have, you know, agency and it's definitely not human, but like there's definitely something in inverting the system we have. It's, I think a useful, it's a useful way to think about why we have what we have. Um, but yeah, but, I, don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know that. Yeah. You could say that, you know, money could be transferred insofar as that it achieves the political goals that you want. You, right. Like you the Polanyi points, the Polanyi point about markets and all these social constructions around uh, capital, as long as they're subordinated to now, he would say the demos or the political community. But we could think of like the global community, as long as the people come first and, and these social constructions serve us, that's great. But as it seems as arbitrary and crazy as both your, your, your book and this piece uh, show notions of, of line drawing and sovereignty and economics to be, they somehow always seem to favor the wealthy as against the poor and vulnerable, though. Somehow that seems to be a, a, a function of this global system that is, you can count on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but tech, so technocratic governance is very unpopular on the left for really good reasons. Um, but I think, look, this treaty that made Svalbard what it is, that was a treaty undemocratically written a very, very long time ago that hasn't really been altered since that actually is like pretty cool and like is kind of <laughs> forcing, forcing mm. Norway to do things that it otherwise definitely wouldn't do as a state. And right. some of them like aren't progressive, but some of them are actually quite good. And I, I think that if we're talking about regulating global capital, maybe there's got to be an element of that. And again, I don't know what it is, but I think, yeah, yeah I think uh, that not the, not the EU. Yeah, not the EU. Nationalizing money or wealth creates its own problems. Internationalizing wealth and money creates problems too. I guess right. like, something I say a lot is like the problem is with foreign money isn't that it's foreign, it's that it's money. Money, right? yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Especially big money. Bigger, bigger, the bigger it is, the bigger the problems. No money. No problems. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, I think that's a beautiful, uh, beautiful place to to pause the conversation for today, and um, lot to think about. And I hope you'll come back and work through more of this with us again. Yeah, that was really fun. Um, thanks, guys, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with five dollars a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support and it helps us keep this going.